The State Department has set five-year goals to promote diversity and equity in its workforce. To track progress, officials are using workforce data broken down office by office. For details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the State Department's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, Ambassador Gina Abercrombie-Winstanley. I certainly knew before I started the job that nothing was going to make sense if we didn't know where we are. How do you judge progress? How do you judge that you're making improvements without that data? And certainly, we had been very, very conservative in the past, not only with how we collected it, but how we shared it. And so I think you would find anyone on Capitol Hill from any party complaining about the lack of transparency, shall we say, from the Department of State with regard to the workforce. So that was where I needed to start, as I think I mentioned to you. And I will smilingly say, since I have certainly brought my colleagues and partners along in the building. But my first reaction that I got when I returned to the department was that, you know, I couldn't have the data because of privacy reasons. And so that had to be overcome and was. And so we worked with our data experts in HR, global talent management, in MSS with our chief data officer. We brought some expertise onto my staff and really sliced and diced and crunched the numbers. And then with the secretary's full support, we said, okay, this is not just for us. This is for everyone because this is a whole, frankly, whole of government effort, but certainly within our organization that everybody needs to be able to see where we're starting so they can judge where we're going and whether we're getting there. All right. That's no small feat. How does that workforce data allow the agency to drill into things like retention and attrition? So that leads us to our next step. Once you get the data, what do you do with it? So looking at it, what it allows us to see is where we're doing well, which frankly is at the bottom of our department, or I should say the lower levels of the department, but entry level. And then we see as people go up the ladder, it thins out. And I may have made the observation when you and I spoke last, but certainly as I looked at the data, it struck me hard. And the bottom line is women and minorities do not lose brain power as we go up the ladder. So something else is going on there that suddenly the upper ranks become far more homogeneous with regard to gender and with regard to racial background, as we describe race in the United States. So then we have to figure out what's happening. And different groups drop off at different levels. So we have to see where's that hard barrier? What's happening that Asian Americans get here, but then out immediately after? Or Hispanic Americans get here, or women get here, or African Americans get here. And so that's when we start to work on the barrier analysis, drilling down deep to see exactly where that bottleneck bends so that we can start asking important questions. How are we advertising these positions? Where are we advertising the positions? Are we getting the right people interested? Are they following through on the application? And if not, why not? How are they making this certification to see, did they bring in the right sort of background to be eligible, competitive? And who's doing the selecting? And so we've worked very hard in this last year to put in place a best practice We're not fully there yet, but we've made huge strides, which is not having a single decision maker, not having a single decision maker. And I tell the story myself of when I was staffing my office, 
as you're looking at people to hire, one person that I was thinking about for my deputy, a brilliant person, incredibly capable, but very much like me. And I realized while I would love to have her and we'd like click and speak shorthand, that that's not what the office needs. The office needs someone who doesn't think or have the same background as I do, but to fill the gaps in my thinking and how I see things, to add to the whole of our ability to come after with recommendations and opportunities to do things differently, and that means a diverse office. So this office is the example of what the department should be looking at, and I would say it is the incredible amount of diversity as well as equity in our office that has made us so successful for this year. You walk in my office and you say, oh, oh, this is what it should look like because it's all kinds of folks in here with very different backgrounds. And I can tell you there are very lively discussions in the office because we don't always agree on the way forward. So it's a spirited debate, but we pull it out at everyone and the equity is there because even though I don't always love it, everyone has a full voice in the office and feels empowered to speak up and give their recommendations. And so we've gotten a lot of good things done in this last year, last year and a few months. Setting the tone for the rest of the department, that's great to hear. One of, I guess, several challenges with getting that good workforce data is, my understanding is it's really a lot of self-reported data from employees And I Mm -hmm. can understand there might be some hesitancy with them filling out that form or checking those boxes. Tell me, what can you and your office do or the department more broadly to make employees feel comfortable self-reporting that data in the first place? Well, the first thing we have to do is make sure everyone understands how the data is used and how the data is stored and that the demographic data is not associated with an individual name number one. So we've done a lot of effort at communicating that, at amplifying that message, making sure people understand that. Number two, we have been exhorting them to identify. And I tell the very sad story of my 30 plus years in the department and I had not identified, I had not gone in and done it myself. So I knew if I hadn't done it, a whole lot of people haven't done it. And so I fessed up, I hadn't done it, but I've done it now and that other people need to. The third thing we do is give an example of why it matters. We use our colleagues with disabilities. They are particularly hesitant to put that data in, not understanding that it's kept separate, number one, and number two, concerned that people might discriminate, might be reluctant to hire if they understand that they're hiring somebody with a disability who might need a reasonable accommodation. It might be more trouble. It might be just more to think about, you know, that you have to build it into your planning from the very beginning. And so people have been reluctant to identify with having a disability. And I make the very real point, which is if we are spending, you know, $5 million on Uh, reasonable accommodations or making things accessible and we're doing that for you know 150 people with disability that's not a bad ratio of money to employee but if in fact we really have you know a thousand people with disabilities then that isn't enough money and we can't make the case for spending more unless we know we need to spend more so it has a real connection with dollars spent on making this organization 
equitable and accessible. Ambassador Gina Abercrombie Winstanley, the State Department's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. 
Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, 
that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Hey, Nissan, how do you get to the top? Calculating. Proceed to 1959. Take a hard left in East Africa at the 71 Safari Rally. Veer right for 19 off-road championships in the Baja Desert. Proceed towards Moab. Take the trail to Hell's Revenge. Include steep incline. 
Continue for the next million miles. Um, where to first again? 60 years, millions of miles, and the capability to take you anywhere. This is the new Nissan. 